Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is episode 34, and it is for August 26th through September 1st, 1 Corinthians 8 through 13, Ye are the body of Christ. And so we're kind of in the middle of our Corinthian study. We kind of had the first part of Corinthians last week. We're in the middle now, and we're going to finish it up, I think, next week. So all kinds of good stuff. Still talking about unity. Still talking about being together. But the thing I liked about this week is it wasn't just about unity, but it was about we need everybody. And everybody has something to contribute. So I just really like that message from this week. Um, Starting off in Come Follow Me, the introduction says... In Paul's time, Corinth was a wealthy trade center with residents from all over the Roman Empire. We talked about that a little bit last week. With so many different cultures and religions in the city, church members in Corinth struggled to maintain unity. So Paul sought to help them find unity in their belief in Christ. Okay, so when I read that phrase that, you know, even though they were vastly different, they came together in their belief in Christ, it made me think of my mom and dad. My mom and dad are just about as polar opposite as you could possibly imagine. Um, My dad is a huge introvert, does math for fun. My mom is a huge extrovert, loves being around people. You know, she loves going to parties and social events and stuff like that, and she'll drag my dad along, and he'll sit in the corner and do, like, differential equations calculus, like, on a notepad just like sitting in the corner of these parties like this is just like their relationship and I remember when I was younger I asked my mom I'm like how does this work like you guys are just so different you know he likes science fictiony things and you like you know nature and stuff and like I just like how how does your relationship work and she told me Lexi you know yeah we don't have a lot of the same interests yeah we have very different personalities but she's like at the base of our relationship our core values are the same We both place supreme emphasis on our faith in Jesus Christ, on our testimonies in the gospel, and that is what we have based our entire marriage on. So all the other stuff... Yeah, it's different, and yeah, sometimes we kind of have to split and go our separate ways when it comes to, like, social events and stuff like that. But overall, it is our faith in Jesus Christ that unifies us. And so when I read that in Come Follow Me this week, it immediately made me think of my mom and dad. Because if, you know, their faith in Jesus Christ can unify them, faith in Jesus Christ can unify anybody. I promise you, because they are so, like, incredibly amusingly different. All right, continuing on with Come Follow Me. It says, this unity was to be more than just a peaceful coexistence. Paul wasn't asking them merely to tolerate each other's differences. Rather, he taught that when you join the church of Jesus Christ, you are baptized into one body and every body part is needed. When one member is lost, it's like losing a limb and the body is weaker as a result. When one member suffers, we should all feel it and do our part to relieve it. 
Okay, so this made me think about, you know, the body in general. The first time I read through this, I thought, you know, like, yeah, chop off a foot and the body definitely feels it. And I think that there are members of like our ward and our church family that if they were to disappear from church and we never saw them again, we would definitely feel it. Like it would be very obvious that they were missing. But then I started thinking about other things like what if you just like chopped off your pinky? Like would you really miss that as much? I think it would definitely alter the way that you pick things up, but it's not like the first thing that comes to your mind. And then I started thinking about, well, you know, obviously, again, I've struggled with illness over the years. And so I've had several different organs removed, you know, at the advice of doctors and things like that. And they're like, oh, yeah, we can totally take that out. You'll just need to take some synthetic hormones, but you will be fine. And it's just not the same. Like, you can try and take that part away, but it's just not the same. And so I think when people leave our church family and... They may think that they aren't needed, but it will never be the same without them there. And so that's why it's so important for us to be able to gather everybody in and, you know, put them all in under the blanket of Jesus Christ. I'm thinking specifically right now of a dear friend who left the church maybe a year or two ago, and she has like the best personality in the world, like the best personality. She could make me laugh and hoot for like hours, like so funny. And um, I really, really desperately miss her sense of humor at church. I mean, we're still friends. We still talk and stuff like that. But being able to talk about church stuff and having her just like make me hoot and holler over stories about things that happened in primary that day. She was our primary chorister. And like, you know, I just, I really terribly miss her at church. And so that's the kind of feeling I think I'm thinking. You're, you know, I mean, she wasn't necessarily anybody like, and I'm saying this in quotation marks, important in the ward. You know, she wasn't like their Leaf Society president or anything. But her presence at church made church a better place for me and made church a better experience for me. And I miss her terribly. And so I think about that when we start talking about the body and the members of the body and how they're all needed. Yeah, that little pinky finger, maybe at first you don't think you need it. But then once it's gone, you find you miss it terribly. Yeah, those internal organs, I thought maybe I didn't really need them because they could be replaced by medication. But no, no, they couldn't. Things are just not the same. And things are not the same without my friend, without other people who have left the church and gone away. And the reason that it's not the same is because... Because we all have different gifts and we have different things to contribute. And Come Follow Me continues on with that. It says, In this kind of unity, differences are not just acknowledged, but cherished. Because without members of diverse gifts and abilities, the body would be limited. So whether you feel like you've always been at home in the church or find yourself wondering if you truly belong, Paul's message to you is that unity is not sameness. All right, I want to say that again because that is like we need that on a billboard and we need to trumpet it around, like put it on a speaker, drive around town and play that because people need to understand that unity does not mean we are all the same. Like unity means that we are all accepted together and that we take the differences and the things that make us different, the things that make us unique, the gifts that make us special. And we, you know, blow those up and we use those gifts and we act upon those gifts and we let people serve with their gifts and their unique abilities. That's what unity means. And Come Follow Me ends by saying, you need your fellow saints and your fellow saints need you. So I like going back to that phrase where he talks about whether or not you feel at home in the church or you find yourself wondering if you truly belong. And, you know, born and raised in the church, I have often felt both sides of that. 
you know, there have been times where I feel very much at home and yes, like a hundred percent, I feel welcome and I feel like part of a family. And then there have been times where I'm like, this is so uncomfortable. Like just showing up every Sunday is all I can do to just like keep from crawling out of my skin because I'm just so uncomfortable. And so there have been times in my life where I've had to live through that. And it's interesting to me because the way that I guess my church leaders maybe being guided by the spirit, I don't think that they even knew that they were doing this. And I didn't really even realize that they were doing this until like I read through this lesson. But at the time, the way that they got me out of like this crazy uncomfortableness in the church was finding callings for me that played to my specific individual talents that maybe not a lot of other people would be like really into. Um, An example of this would be when they called me to be a social media person for the stake. And now I was in a place where I was having panic attacks about church. You know, my husband had left the church and I was there by myself and, you know, I was really freaked out and just, I felt like everyone was looking at me. Everyone was judging me. It was really hard for me to even get up on Sunday mornings and go to church. And they give me this calling and it was awesome because I didn't have to be like at any of these like stake events or church events or anything like that. But I was still involved, and I got to be involved with people from Salt Lake posting their stuff, people from the local PR council posting their stuff, and so I still had a network that slowly built around the particular skills and gifts that I had, and I was able to bless my stake by giving out that information to them as well, and that made me more comfortable going back to church and going to stake activities and going to different things like that because now I knew people, and I knew that they saw a value in me. So when we see people who are looking uncomfortable or when we see people who maybe, you know, are struggling, finding their unique gifts and finding ways to help them serve and be surrounded and feel more comfortable in themselves and in church, I think is a very valuable thing. Recognizing those gifts in people is very valuable as well. Lots of things I've been thinking about about that this week. All right, so first up and come follow me, the first section says, God provides a way to escape temptation. And it says, spiritual experiences, even miraculous ones, do not exempt us from temptations that are common to man. And if you remember, one of the biggest and best examples of this that I can think of is when we read about Jesus being in the desert after a 40-day fast, and he comes out, and what is the first thing that happens to him after a 40-day fast? He's tempted by Satan, right? Satan tells him to turn the rocks into bread. He takes him up on top of the temple and says, all this can be yours, and, you know, cast yourself off the temple and have the angels catch you, and, you know, I mean, he tempts him in all those different ways. Well, that's the Savior. So if the Savior goes through something miraculous and a great spiritual experience and then comes out and is tempted of Satan, what about us? Yeah, we are going to go through that too, just like our Savior did. And so that may be one reason Paul wrote about the Israelites in Moses' day and how they struggled with temptation, even though they witnessed mighty miracles. And so it tells you to go in and read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, and see what warnings in the Israelites' experiences seem applicable to you. And as I was reading this through, I think that there's like a couple of different sections the way it's divided up. And the first section I would say is like kind of like one through five where he's going through and he's recounting the miracles. So these are some of the miracles that I saw here in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, 1 through 5. Um, He talks about how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So that's talking about the cloud that was with them during the day and the fire at night. And side note, um, someone told me 
a couple years ago that the Provo Temple back in the early 2000s was actually based upon this concept, that that's what it was supposed to look like, where, you know, it was supposed to look like a cloud during the day and then fire at night, which made a whole lot more sense to me than what I thought it looked like, which was a big bowl of ranch dip with a carrot sticking out of it. Um, I don't know, maybe that's just where my mind went. So, but yeah, the Provo Temple is supposed to symbolize that cloud during the day and the fire at night. Um, And then Paul talks about all pass through the sea. So that's the Red Sea that they all pass through. He's reminding them, remember that time that, you know, Moses went through and the sea divided and they all walked around dry ground. It says all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So it's kind of like a symbolic baptism. Right, a symbolic baptism, they walked through water to get to the other side. Just as we, in our walk with Christ, we are put in the water when we come back out of the water, and we're saved through Christ, right? Three, all did eat the same spiritual meat, that was the manna from heaven. And four, all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And that's where they went to the big stone in the desert, and they were really thirsty, and Moses broke it open with his staff, and they all drank, there was water in there. Which, by the way, rabbit trail, side trail, we're, we're going off on a, on a tangent. I always think it's fascinating to find out, like, the scientific possibilities behind these miracles. Because, yes, I believe God is a God of miracles. I absolutely believe that he does miracles every day. I also think that he uses natural laws and natural occurrences to create these miracles. So I think that there's always, whenever he does something miraculous, I think there's always some kind of science behind it that he's manipulated and he's put into place to create that miracle. And the rock in the desert, I think this is so interesting. They have these rocks out there that are very porous. They've got lots of like little tunnels and channels and stuff in them. And it'll rain sometimes like monsoon or whatever. And so when it rains, it fills these rocks up and then there will be calcium and the salt and stuff like that. And it will come and it will cover those rocks encrusted up in salt and calcium and they'll be encrusted. But then underneath that thin crust of calcium and salt and sand, there's water. And so they think that that's kind of how this happened where with the rock in the desert is that, you know, Moses walked up and banged his staff on that rock and it broke through that layer of calcium and salt and the water was able to pour out. And so I just think that's really cool just the way our Heavenly Father uses his natural creations and natural laws to be able to provide miracles for us. All right, coming back to 1 Corinthians 10, coming back off our rabbit trail. Here we go. They all did drink the same spiritual drink. It says, okay, but they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is the example of the miracles, but even though they had these miracles, they still were tempted. And so now Paul is going to tell us about the temptations, right? And he says in 6, now these were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And in 7, he talks about how they were idol worshipers. He says that they were fornicators in 8. And there's something interesting in verse 8. It talks about, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and 20,000. I did a little bit of research. And there's nowhere in the Old Testament that talks about 23,000 people being wiped out in one day. There was some people that got wiped out after, you know, there was the whole golden calf thing and everything like that. But the numbers don't really add up with that. I mean, maybe it's something where they they just left the extra numbers out and there really was 23,000 that got wiped out. Another example that actually kind of makes more sense to me, I think, is in Numbers 25.9. There's some fornication. They were kind of mixing with people who were not of the house of Israel, and there was a plague. In Numbers 25.9, it says, And those that died in the plague were 24,000. 
And so I think perhaps in this case, there might have been something changed a little bit in translation over the course of, you know, thousands of years. Um, either what we've got is different or what Paul had was different. I think maybe that that was the situation he was talking about. Otherwise, we really don't know what he's talking about, where he says, uh, and fell in one day, three and 20,000. We have no idea. But I think numbers 25-9 is probably the best bet. All right, in nine. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. So that's your fiery serpents. You know, they came along, they bit people. If they would look at the serpent up on the staff, they would live. If they didn't, they died. Right. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, some of them were also destroyed of the destroyer. Let me remind you that of the children of Israel who wandered into the desert... Only two of the originals came out alive, Joshua and Caleb. The rest of them were all destroyed, okay? <laughs> so the rest of them did not make it. Of course, their children and their progeny made it, but of the originals who entered into the desert, only Joshua and Caleb saw the promised land. So we don't want to be destroyed like the children of Israel in the desert were, all right? Continuing on, Paul, and this is kind of like his third section, where he says, now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the worlds are come. Therefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And so he's telling, you know, these people who he's writing to, the Jews, and those who call themselves the children of Israel, like, hey, you guys think you're so good because you are of the house of Israel? Because you are the chosen people? Well, guess what? Let's talk about the time that all these other chosen people were tempted and they made bad choices and fell. Like, just because you think, you you know, you're safe doesn't mean you're safe. You are always exposed to temptation. No matter where you are spiritually, you are still exposed to temptation, which is why it's so important for us to have a way out. And then Come Follow Me continues, What kind of escape from temptation has Heavenly Father provided for you? And it gives you a couple verses to go in and read. The first one is Alma 13, 28. And it says, but that you would humble yourselves before the Lord, call on his holy name, and watch and pray continually that you may not be tempted above that which you can bear. And thus being led by the Holy Spirit, becoming humble and meek, submissive, patient, full of love, and all long-suffering, having faith on the Lord, having a hope that you shall have eternal life, having the love of God always in your hearts, that ye may be lifted up at the last day and enter into his rest. All right, so things that stood out to me from that verse, watching and praying continually. So being, you know, aware that temptation is out there and praying to stay away from it and being strong enough to resist it, being led by the Holy Ghost, following the Holy Ghost. And then I like that Alma puts this in here, the becoming humble and meek. How does becoming humble and meek when you're faced with temptation, how does that help you? Well, I think sometimes becoming humble and meek means that you don't have pride entering into the equation. How many times do we, you know, do that thing we know we shouldn't do because people are watching and we don't want to be uncool, you know? Or we don't want to disappoint someone, so we're going to go ahead and, like, I'm using this as an example, take a drink of alcohol or whatever, because we don't want to be uncool. Well, if we're meek and humble and we don't have that pride, then that's a way to escape temptation right there. Um, I like that he talks about being submissive and patient and full of love and all long-suffering. And for me, that is my escape plan from temptation, because my temptation mostly comes when I lose my patience, either with myself when I lose my patience with my kid or my husband or I lose patience with Heavenly Father, I get mad at him. And so that is when 
I stumble spiritually. And so that was very instructive to me to read that this week, to be submissive and patient and full of love and long-suffering. And that will help me avoid a lot of the temptation that arises in my own life. In 3 Nephi 18.18, another scripture, come follow me, references, it says, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must always watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. For Satan desireth to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Therefore, you must always pray unto the Father in my name. So I heard a lot about prayer. There was lots of, you know, you must always pray, you must always pray, you must always pray. And so then the question from Come Follow Me is what kinds of escape from temptation has Heavenly Father provided for you? And so I started thinking about, you know, again, in my life, as an adult, temptation, besides like little things of like, you know, oh, I'm really frustrated, so I'm going to yell at my kid. You know, I mean, besides that, like I don't really have any like mega major temptations. And so I started thinking about the times in my life where I did have mega major temptations and how God helped me get out of that. And so I started thinking about my senior year of high school, I had a boyfriend that summer of my senior year. You know, we, like, I guess had been boyfriend-girlfriend for, like, a couple of weeks, maybe. And, like, I knew things were not going in the direction that they should. Like, I knew things were headed in a bad direction. And that, you know, like, in, like, an immoral direction is what I'm saying. You know, I knew that that was on the horizon. And so... You know, I was praying. I'm like, Heavenly Father, help me to figure out a way out of this. Like, I don't want to break up with this guy because I really like him. And I really like having a boyfriend. It was like one of my first boyfriends, I think. Um, And I was like, I just really like the attention. And I don't know what to do, Heavenly Father, but help me like escape temptation. Right. So then the week after I said that prayer, my throat kind of swelled up. And I was like, what is going on with my throat? Like, it's a little scratchy. It's a little, like, swollen. And then I started running a fever. And I'm like, what? And so I go to the doctor. And would you not believe it? I had mono. And so I go to my boyfriend at the time. And I'm like, dude, I have mono. How do you not have mono? And he's like, uh. And I'm like, what? And he's like, well, I cheated on you. And this girl that I cheated on you with, she has mono. (laughs) I was like, what? You did what? So apparently this guy that I had been kissing on had, he's like a carrier for the monovirus. And so the girl he cheated on me with got mono. I got mono. I was no longer kissing on him. So temptation was removed. I mean, so that was one way that I thought of when I was a teenager that the Lord helped me escape temptation through prayer and through mononucleosis. So... Okay, so moving on from a teenage love, um, we're going into the next part of Come Follow Me. That is, the sacrament unifies us as followers of Christ. And this was actually something that was very interesting for me to think about. I never had quite put it together before. It talks about, you know, why is it important for us to come together as believers and take the sacrament, take the bread and water? And I started thinking about that, and I'm like, huh. Like, why would it not be okay for us just to, you know, take it at home? Like, why do we have to come together each Sunday and take it together? And it it references 1 Corinthians 10, 17. And it says, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And so we are all partakers of Christ. One of the reasons I think it's so important for us to get together on Sunday and why we need to kind of come together as one Um, to be together with other believers, is it keeps it from becoming routine. And even, I think, sometimes even coming together with other believers, it still becomes kind of routine. But if you were to just do it at your own house or whatever, I mean, it could be something like brushing your teeth, right? 
brushing your teeth is something good that's good for you, but you do it every day and you brush your teeth and your mind kind of wanders while you're brushing your teeth and it's just something that's not a big deal. Whereas on Sunday, you know, you get ready for church, you put on nice clothes, you do your hair and makeup, you know, you go to church, you greet, you know, your fellow brothers and sisters in God, and you sit down and, you know, you sing songs and pass the bread and water and it's in silence and everyone's being reverent. And I think that puts so much more emphasis on the sacrament and on the sacredness of renewing those baptismal covenants that we take it so much more seriously than we would if we were just doing it in our kitchen, right? So that was one of the reasons I thought that it's important for us to get together to take the sacrament. And not only that, but I think it's important for us to get together and have that spiritual experience together as a group because I believe that fosters unity and that creates unity among us, that we can all, you know, be together experiencing and having that same spiritual experience all at the same time. You know, I think about girls' camp. When our girls go off to girls camp and, you know, they've had this great week and they have, you know, a testimony meeting. Testimony meeting is always the highlight of their week because they all get up and they all have this like amazing spiritual experience together. And so I think the sacrament can be like that testimony meeting at girls camp for us as a ward and kind of bond us together. I don't know. That's kind of what I thought about when I read that particular section in Come Follow Me. All right, up next in Come Follow Me. Why did Paul write about head coverings and hairstyles? Well, he was just addressing the cultural grooming and customs of that day. So I'm going to kind of skip over that because it's just like, uh, he was just kind of talking about grooming. The important thing from 1 Corinthians 11 is 1 Corinthians 11, 11, And it says, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, and neither the woman without the man in the Lord. And I think that is so important. I know you guys have probably figured out, if you've listened to any more than like one or two of my episodes, that I really harp on like women in the church and women in the gospel. I felt it's really important to talk about them. And I really feel like it's important to kind of give them equal footing. And I've always been this way, like ever since I was like little in Sunday school and they'd ask me who my favorite person in the scriptures was. And I was like, Esther, Queen Esther, Queen Esther is my favorite. And they would be like, no, you have to name one from the Book of Mormon. And I'd be like, Sariah, Sariah is my favorite. And they were like, Lexi, you got to name a boy. I'm like, do I? do I have to name a boy? Because I don't think I do. Like, even it got to the point in seminary where they would call me the femme Nazi because I was always talking about women in the scriptures and women in the church. But I just think it's so important that we talk about them because they are just as important to the men as the men are to the women. And a lot of times I don't think we make that recognition. I love that Paul does in this moment. I also love that Come Follow Me chose to recognize it. And even it goes on and gives you a quote from David A. Bednar. It says, The man and the woman are intended to learn from, to strengthen, to bless, and to complete each other as they progress towards exaltation. And that is actually a really good description to me. It makes me think of my husband and just in marriage in general. You know, the places where I'm weak, he's strong. And the places where he's weak, I'm strong. And it works out really well for us together because we're able to kind of fill in those voids for each other. So I really like that. All right, up next, spiritual gifts are given to benefit all of Heavenly Father's children. And it talks about the list of spiritual gifts that's listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. And the thing I like about this is it says it's not exhaustive. Like there are other ones. It's just a place to start that you can start thinking about and to ponder the spiritual gifts that Heavenly Father has given to you. 
And there's an article in Gospel Topics um, that about spiritual gifts that's really kind of interesting too. I'll just talk to you a little bit about that article. It says, Spiritual gifts and blessings or abilities given by God to his children through the power of the Holy Ghost. Gifts of the Spirit are given to bless and benefit those who love the Lord and seek to keep his commandments. That's something I've seen in my own life. Whenever I've seen spiritual gifts in use or whenever I felt spiritual gifts myself being used, it's always to benefit others. Very rarely is it ever to benefit myself, which kind of frustrates me sometimes because I've been blessed with the gift of wisdom. My patriarchal blessing tells me that. And I'm like, it would be really helpful to be able to use that gift of wisdom in my own life sometimes. Like, But it doesn't work that way. It's not for my own gain. It's for, you know, to advise others and to counsel others and to um, teach others, but not necessarily for myself. I don't know. It gets frustrating a little bit, but all right. Continuing on with the spiritual gifts topic, it says each faithful member of the church has at least one spiritual gift. So I want you to remember that each faithful member of the church has at least one spiritual gift. And so to me, that's always been very interesting because I think there are some people where their spiritual gifts are like right off super obvious. Um, There's one woman in my ward that I can think of who is incredibly musically talented, gorgeous voice and gorgeous testimony of the power of music and its ability to bear witness of the Lord. And I mean, her spiritual gift, I hear every Sunday. I love sitting by her family because I get to hear her. Um, I mean, so that's a very obvious spiritual gift, right? But then I think of another woman in our ward who is just incredibly steady and dependable and faithful. And I think that's a spiritual gift as well, that just knowing that that person will always be there no matter what. I mean, the church could blow up in a nuclear explosion and she would still be there on Sunday. Like that is a spiritual gift as well, dependability. And I'm actually really kind of jealous of that spiritual gift because I'm kind of flaky. And I think that's something I'm constantly trying to work towards is being more dependable and less flaky. So, um, you know, We're told to covet good gifts, and that's a good gift that I covet because I really want to see it in myself. But dependability, so that's not one that's like as flashy maybe as something as like, you know, a gorgeous musically spiritual gift, but it's still one that is vitally important to the functioning of the church. So some of the spiritual gifts that this topic on Gospel Topics mentions, first one is knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. And I think that there are some people who are born with this knowledge who just know it deep down in their soul. But I also think that this in particular is a spiritual gift that every single one of us can obtain if we put in the work to gain that knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. You know, if we put that to the test, we go and we read the scriptures and we pray about it and we think about it and we look to our Heavenly Father and we look for answers from the Spirit, I think every single one of us can obtain that spiritual gift. Um, The next one it lists is the capacity to believe the words of those who testify of Jesus Christ, which I think that's kind of a really cool spiritual gift to be able to believe somebody else. You know, we talk about not relying on others' testimonies, building your own testimony, which I think is really important. And that's what the previous spiritual gift we just talked about was. But I also think that there's something cool about being able to hear somebody else's testimony and have it strengthen your own. I think we all get that to a lesser extent, maybe every fast and testimony meeting. But it's not something that I see in myself, I guess. 
I feel like I'm more strengthened when I'm like by myself and pondering and having my quiet time with my scriptures than I am, I guess, listening to others' testimonies. I definitely get things out of others' testimonies and I definitely feel the spirit when they talk. And, you know, yes, it, it embraces and kind of firms up my own testimony. But I don't know. I don't feel like I have that gift or that capacity to kind of, you know, lean on that. Next one it talks about is the knowledge of the gift of administration. And this gift is used in administering and leading the church. And one person I thought of when, you know, I read that description of this is my dad. My dad, which, you know, again, introvert man who sits in the corner and does like calculus at parties, um, has this gift. He is an incredible administrator in the church. He was in the Bishop Bricks from the time I was like eight years old to the time I was like 20 something, 25 maybe or something. Like, I mean, he was in the Bishop Bricks and Bishop like forever. And he's on the high council forever. And then he served with the area authority, like as their secretary forever. Like he just does a really good job of administering in the church. And I think one of the reasons that is, is because he has that gift that I mentioned before about another sister. He's just so diligently faithful. Like he is a bedrock. Like he does not stray from everything he knows is right. If he needs to be at church on Sunday, he will be at church on Sunday. Like we go to the beach and my dad still goes to church on Sunday, even when we're at the beach. And all the people in the little branch down there at the beach know my dad and they get really excited when he comes because he's there and they're excited to see him again because he's always there whenever we go on vacation, right? He still is going to church. Um, Even though it's like an hour and a half from the beach, he still drives that to be able to go to church. Like that's just who he is. But because of that, I think the Lord knows that he's able to count on him to, you know, show up to all those meetings and show up to all of like the service projects. And, and beyond that, because my dad has a brain for like such details, he is able to absorb like vast amounts of information and be able to use that in administering the different affairs of the church. Like whenever anything goes wrong with our church building, my dad is one of the first people that they ask because he knows the air conditioning system so well, which sounds crazy, but he was like the bishop in charge of like facilities, I guess, when he was there. And so he knows how the entire building works. He knows all the different families and how they work together. He knows who to put in what calling because he knows their history. I mean, he just has like this vast encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, I guess our ward in our area. And it works out really well. I mean, he's just able to, I guess, use that in his administrative abilities and gifts and stuff like that. That's not all he does. Like right now he's actually teaching the Sunday school for the mid-single adults. So he does other stuff too. But that's just something I've always seen in him is that he just does really well in administrative roles, which is interesting to me because he has so not like a leader personality. But when he's in those roles, the Lord fills that out. I even remember as a little girl, someone saying like, have you noticed a change in your dad since he became bishop? And, you know, out of the mouth of babes, like, you know, honesty. Yeah, I was like, yes, he's become so much more a people person and so much more friendly (laughs) because, and I think that was the spirit kind of enhancing that gift of administration in him, letting him work with people, whereas he's not very naturally inclined to do so. It's where I get a lot of my natural introversion from. All right. Next gift that talks about knowledge of diversities of operations, which if you had asked me this like a week ago, what does this mean? I think, oh, maybe how like different things in the church work or something. No, no, no. It has a definition for here and it says it helps individuals discern whether a teaching or influence comes from God or from some other source. Huh. 
I had no idea that that's what that meant, but that's actually a really good gift to have. And I think that's another one that we can all have to some degree in our lives as we strive and we look for the light of Jesus Christ. We'll be able to recognize the things that have that light and those things that are not from that light. The gift of the word of wisdom, and this is the one that my patriarchal blessing identifies. It says, this does not refer to the law known as the word of wisdom. Rather, it is the gift of wisdom, which is the ability to use knowledge in righteous ways. And I've been specifically told that I have that gift to be able to counsel and advise others. So again, it's not for me. It is to be used for others. The gift of the word of knowledge is another one. The ability to teach by the power of the Holy Ghost the gift of faith, the gift to have faith to be healed. And I've seen that in my sister. You know, I've talked about in a couple episodes, my sister was very, very ill when she was younger and had many priesthood blessings. We didn't think she'd survive. She eventually ended up, after spending like two years in a children's hospital in Birmingham, she ended up having one of her lungs cut out and half of her heart because of tumors. And you know, she believed that God would get her through this, and she believed in the power of the priesthood. And even to this day, her testimony, I think a lot of it rests upon the power of the priesthood, and she believes on that so heavily. And so I think she really does have the faith to be healed, specifically by the power of the priesthood. The gift to have faith to heal, the working of miracles, the gift of prophecy, the beholding of angels and ministering spirits, the discerning of spirits, the gift to speak in different languages, the gift of interpretations of tongues. There's so many others. These spiritual gifts and others listed in the scriptures are only some of the examples of the many gifts of the Spirit. The Lord blesses his children in many ways according to their faithfulness and their needs and the needs of those they serve. And, you know, I mentioned two gifts before we even start talking, the gift of, you know, using music to bless the lives of others, and then the gift of dependability. Those weren't mentioned at all in this list, but I see them both as very important gifts and very unique and unusual gifts. You know, the friend I talked about that's left the church, she had the gift of humor, which I know that sounds crazy to think of that as a spiritual gift, but she really was able to take situations where people were really uncomfortable and maybe there was some like disunity there and she would like infuse it with humor and all of a sudden everyone was laughing and they were friends again. Like she was able to use her crazy awesome sense of humor to bring people together and so I saw that as a spiritual gift. So I think when we talk about spiritual gifts and when we talk about the interesting characteristics that we all have, I think of Queen Esther. Yeah, I love some Queen Esther. I do. I cannot wait till we get to come follow me with the Old Testament because, y'all, I'm going to own that Queen Esther episode. You have no idea. But Queen Esther always has that scripture, you know, where Mordecai is talking to her and he says, Who knowest if thou hast not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? One of the things that I love about Queen Esther is because the Lord just like Paul, gave her everything she needed and manipulated her into the position where she was for her to complete her mission. And I see the Lord do the same thing with each one of us, where we are given everything we need, special gifts, like we're talking about here. We're manipulated into these different places where we are with other people in the church, and we are given everything we need to succeed in our mission, but we can't do it by ourselves. 
Like we have to do it together and do it as a ward family and do it with others. And it's used to bless others. And so who knowest if thou has not been sent to the kingdom for such a time as this? That's what I hear in my mind every time we start talking about gifts. So what is your gift that you have? And what is the gift that you can use to bless others' lives? And what is the gift that you have that nobody else has that you are desperately needed in your ward to fulfill? Like, those are the questions that I'm thinking, like, this week in my own head. And I'm thinking about, you know, the people around me. A lot of times when I think about gifts, I tend to think about me. Me, me, me. What gifts do I have? And what gifts do I need to develop? And stuff like that. But it was interesting this week to think about, you know, those around me. Like, what are some spiritual gifts that I see? And specifically, what are some spiritual gifts that I see that aren't mentioned in here? And that was kind of fun to think about. Okay, now we're going to be jumping down into the ideas for family scripture study and family home evening. This first section, it talks about 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, and it talks about Paul's, where Paul's describing running a race and run that you may obtain the prize and the incorruptible prize and all that good stuff. And it asks, what might a champion runner do to prepare for a race? Okay, well, so I texted my friend Kansas. Y'all met Kansas in episode 19. And I love my friends because I can text them random stuff and they don't even ask why. They just answer. And so my question to Kansas was, is I was like, you told me one time about like a university class at some college somewhere where there was a professor and he would take people, he would take anyone who would enter the class and he would turn them into a marathon runner by the end of the semester. I'm like, what was the name of that class and who was the professor? And she's like, oh, and she like popped it off to me. And I was like, ha, okay, thank you. Like, didn't even ask why I wanted to know it. <laughs> didn't even ask like, Lexi, where is this coming from? No, she's like, oh, Lexi's asking me a random question. Here's your answer, Lexi. So <laughs> I love that about you, Kansas. You are awesome. Okay, so this is the story. So David A. Witsit. He is a professor at the University of Northern Iowa, and he has offered a class called Marathoning 101, and it's been offered five times over 10 years, and every single student has finished a marathon. Okay, the whole premise of the class is that a marathon is not about physicality, it is about psychology, and that it's all about mentality. And of course, yeah, you need to train and stuff like that, but it's all about overcoming mental hurdles, and it's all about why you are running, the whys you are running, and being able to do stuff. He said he took people from, like, who couldn't even walk more than five minutes and got them through to a marathon, right? And so he actually has a book, if you're interested. It's called The Non-Runner's Marathon Trainer, and it talks about several different techniques you can use when you're running. But I want to read something to you from the Amazon description of this book, all right? And it says, what makes the success rate of this program so much higher than any other? The special emphasis on the psychological aspects of endurance. You don't have to love to run. You don't even have to like it. But you have to realize that you are capable of more than you ever thought possible. Okay, just like the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like church. You know, there are times where we're not going to like it. It's not going to feel comfortable but we are capable of so much more in the gospel of Jesus Christ than we ever thought possible. One participant in the program, the marathon program, explained it like this. I'm doing this for me, not for others or for the time clock. I just feel better when I run. Plus, it helps me to cope with things in general. The skills we've learned in this class don't apply just to marathoning. They apply to life. 
Just like you never know what the next step in a marathon will bring, so too you never know what will happen next in life. But if you don't keep going, you're never going to find out. By staying relaxed, centered, and positive, you can handle just about anything that comes at you. I mean, are you guys listening to this and like hearing the spiritual metaphor for this? Like I totally hear it. So to me, when I was thinking about running and racing and stuff like that, like I'm not a runner. (laughs) You know, my main mode of exercise is water aerobics. I love doing water aerobics. That's like my main mode of exercise. Like running is not my thing. Like every time I've tried it, I've like ended up tweaking my knee or my hip or something. So this whole scripture, I was like, I don't identify with. But then I started remembering, you know, what Kansas told me about this professor and his whole premise of marathoning is all about psychology and where you put your, you know, goals and your emphasis. And I was like, oh, I can relate to that. That is gospel centered. Where do you put your emphasis? How do you keep yourself centered while you're running? How do you get yourself through the hard times? Yeah, that all applies to the gospel. Now I see what Paul is talking about. That makes sense to me. So I thought that was really interesting when we got to that section there in the family home scripture study. And then last, we're almost done, guys, but I had to include this because I was totally thinking about this as I read it. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, and this is where it's talking about charity, and if I have not this, then I have not charity, you know, that that whole thing. And so I was listening to it as I was driving to work one morning, and as I'm listening to it, like these verses, I'm like, oh my gosh, those are the Hogwarts houses. So we're going to talk about the Hogwarts houses here in just a minute. But first it asks you, how could you make posters together for each of these phrases to be like a motto for your family? Right? And so I started thinking about like when I was younger, my family actually had a motto that we came together at Family Home Evening and made. And I actually went and drew up like a little crest of arms. My parents still have it framed in the study at their house. And our family motto was, and guys, I kid you not, this is literally our family motto. It was be kind, be civil, don't whine, and snivel. <laughs> that is literally our family motto. Be kind, be civil, don't whine and snivel. So be nice and don't whine. Like that was that was our emphasis. And that was what our coat of arms had on it. It had a little sad sad crying face for the whining and sniveling, right? So that was our family motto. But going back to 1 Corinthians here, 13, 4 through 8. So it reminded me of the Hogwarts houses. And here's why. The first one. This is actually, I'm backing on up. We're going back to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to start with 1. Verse 1 reminds me of the Slytherins. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am becoming as a sounding brass, or a tinkling cymbal. You know, because the Slytherins are all about, you know, getting further ahead, and they're all about strategy, and they can sound really good, right? But they don't have charity. All right. And then verse 2 is the Ravenclaws, which I heart Ravenclaw, Ravenclaw for life right here. So I'm just going to keep going with it though. Verse two says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have not charity, I have nothing. And three is going to be my Gryffindors. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. 
And then here come my Hufflepuffs. And this is where I start thinking about the Hufflepuffs. Because the Hufflepuffs are known for their loyalty, for their love, for their acceptance. But, you know, no one ever wants to be a Hufflepuff. Because they always think of Hufflepuff as like the leftover house. Where, you know, they gather up everyone who's not brave or smart or cunning. They put them in the Hufflepuff. Because the Hufflepuffs are accepting and they love everyone. But here's the thing that is so interesting to me. J.K. Rowling came out and she talked about the Hufflepuffs. And she said, they are the best house out of all four of the Hogwarts houses. Because in the Battle of Hogwarts, none of the Hufflepuffs left. You know, you have the Gryffindors who supposedly are super brave. But they, I mean, some of them stayed and fought, yes. And some of the Slytherins stayed and fought. And some of the Ravenclaws stayed and fought. But also some of them turned around and left. Whereas not a single Hufflepuff left and deserted Hogwarts during the Battle of Hogwarts. Which, you guys, I know I'm taking this way too seriously, but Harry Potter is life, okay? (laughs) I'm just saying. So, that's what was in my brain as I was, like, reading through these scriptures. And we get to verse 4. And this is where the Hufflepuffs start coming in. So listen to Hufflepuffs. Think about those Hufflepuffs standing in the Battle of Hogwarts. And this is them. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. It doth not behave itself unseemingly. It seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, and thinketh no evil. It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. It beareth all things, it believeth all things, it hopeth all things, it endureth all things. Charity never faileth. And so I started thinking about that. I was like, that was the Hufflepuffs in the Battle of Hogwarts. So in those verses, I liken the scriptures unto myself as it comes through Harry Potter and the Hogwarts houses of Harry Potter. So Hufflepuffs, to me, represent charity. So I've decided in my life that I'm a Ravenpuff. You know, I'm Ravenclaw. You know, the wisdom and knowledge and stuff, I I love that a lot. But I also need to have more Hufflepuff in my life. So that is what I decided this week. All right. On that note, I'm going to go ahead and end this week's episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. It's been fun to talk about. This was a really fun section of scripture this week to read about. So um, I hope you will go through and read it and think about it. Think about the gifts that you have and, you know, the ways that we can incorporate members of our ward who have unusual gifts as well. So have an awesome week, guys. Keep trying to be like Jesus. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.